seeking God's righteousness. We could refer to that as godliness. We've been in Second Peter chapter 1, looking at these, what I call, components of Christ-likeness. And last Wednesday, we talked about godliness, but as I was studying, I thought there's quite a bit more that I, I still had left to, to say. So this is part two of looking at that. Uh, last week, we considered godliness as a long-term spiritual investment, uh, something that we realize is going to benefit us over a long period of time. We're not just caught up into living for the moment like our society is so big on. We also saw that it's the unique work of the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just about something that we can manufacture. We can't just make ourselves godly. It's, it's Jesus who makes us godly. And then also that it's bound uh, to the spirit of personal contentment. Uh, you can't separate godliness um, from contentment. You know, as it says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's when we're really achieving the kind of things that we need to be. But something else I want us to consider tonight is godliness also involves both a devotion to God and discipline of self. It's heart-loving God, but because I tend to get in the way, our flesh gets in the way, then there has to be this dealing with us, the disciplining of ourselves. Godliness also involves if I could put it this way, a target, or as we are striving to live godly, there needs to be a sense of a cause. Why are we doing what we're doing? What is our motivation? The person who's growing in godliness will ever be increasing in their concern for what Jesus' mission is on earth. And we've touched on this in our series on Acts on Sundays. Jesus ascended into heaven, and the last thing he gave to them was his commission, expressing his heart for people. And so, basically, to put it in the modern vernacular, guys, go out and tell people about me everywhere, and I'll give you the power to do that. And so, we really can't be godly if we're not concerned, and I would say even consumed, with the mission that Christ has given to us. The godly man is not just being good, he is also doing good. And I would say that we do good if we truly are good. Uh, by just trying to do the right things won't necessarily make our heart good. So there is, a, there is an order to that we need to understand. And God is the one that generates that in us. When Paul was explaining his approach to preaching and about the temptation to, to speak out, to gain the applause of the crowds and the admiration of people. Because he was a man, he could see how that that would be tempting or people might be in the ministry or think that of him. He said this in Galatians 1.10 that, that speaks about his personal focus. He says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now, he's not saying, therefore, if I'm going to make Jesus happy, I need to aggravate people. Okay? 
So I'm going to go out and I'm going to be godly by just upsetting as many people as I can. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying you shouldn't go out with the primary focus of being a people pleaser. You need to be a person pleaser, the person of Jesus Christ. And that means that sometimes people will not be so happy with you. They may not understand you. And yet, your devotion is primarily to God, is what he is saying there. You cannot simultaneously serve two masters. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, also in Matthew 6. So we're going to examine tonight the lives of two different Bible characters to better understand the importance of godliness and the commitment to do God's bidding, to to be godly and to behave godly. The first character, both of these are well-known characters, but they're going to be contrasting each other, as you'll see. First one's a man after God's own heart, which is who? David. From an early age, David had developed a reputation for being very devoted and disciplined in the Lord. He had a lot of free time on his hands, He could have chosen it to get caught up in mischief, but instead he used it to invest in his personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think how precious just Psalm 23 is to us. Psalm 19, some of these other psalms that that just speak of the devotional nature of a man who just loved God so much. And because he did, of course, that's part of what made him godly but you know it wasn't just that god understood that when a man's ways please the lord he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him so it's not surprising that when king saul first king of the kingdom was looking for a court musician that as they put out their feelers that david's name popped up we don't know how this advisor in Saul's court knew this, but in 1 Samuel 16, 18, it says, Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning and playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and, most importantly, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. That is another way of expressing the godliness that's in David. He had a great testimony. He had no idea that it would help his, his career resume, so to speak, to put it in modern terms. He just set out to love God and do what he said. And, and when we seek first the kingdom of God, as Mary played for us tonight, he'll add the things to us. The context of Matthew there, of course, is talking about, you know, the food and raiment and things of that nature, but we get so distraught. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Well, do the best you can with what God has given to you. In the end, have faith and serve God and love God and believe He cares for you. So it's not surprising that when a great military crisis arose for Israel, that David rose to the occasion of that crisis. And really, as you remember the story there in 1 Samuel, He's the only person that keeps his head on straight, really. It's the story of the Philistines taunting the armies of Israel. The verbal assaults are flying across the valley. They pick a champion, this 
gargantuan man by the name of Goliath. He's intimidating both in his stature and as well as in his demeanor. And yet, the verbal assaults were not just against Israel's troop. He, he wasn't just criticizing and, and scoffing the army. It was really an attack against God. And that's what David just could not abide by. David had such a loyalty and a respect for Jehovah that he simply dismissed the towering figure that was there every day of that enemy soldier. He's not caught up in, how am I going to take this guy down? He's not thinking about, well, no one else has challenged him. Am I an idiot to go out there against that? No, all he could think about is he was so caught up in his intense love and his fervency for God that he's like, something's got to be done. David, again, being that man after God's own heart, he was, he was godly in outward ways, but it began with a consuming passion for God within. David was not stepping ahead of his brothers and the other soldiers because he was just trying to show them up. He's like, yeah, they're all scared of him because they don't want to go hand-to-hand combat sword to sword. But I've been practicing with that sling, so I don't even have to get close to that you know, big angry soldier on the other side. That's not what David was thinking. We don't have any indication of that. He's like, and then they're all going to, you know, sing my praises and give me a parade and stuff. No, that's not what he was in for. It wasn't that he had no fear of the enemy necessarily. That David was somehow had this uh, superhuman ability to dismiss it and, and to be perilous. But it was really that his loyalty for God was so strong that it completely eclipses the intimidating maneuvers of his opponent. Let me just read for you that that part in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to start at verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee... In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied, this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, unto the wild bill, the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Courageous talk, right? But he backs it up. It's not just verbiage from him. And why is he speaking this? Well, you can sense he's not just, you know, saying this very softly. I mean, those phrases, those words definitely need to be accompanied by an amplified voice. And an intense expression on the face, no doubt, of indignation. How dare you? Who do you think you are, Goliath? Right? I don't think we're reading into it to suggest that. Jim Berg, writing on this, observed that there is no genuine godliness if there is not heartfelt devotion and love for Jesus Christ. And there is not godliness if there is no brave-hearted engagement against the enemies of the Lord. 
it, it goes hand in hand, and the one reciprocates the other. And so what is going on today? Well, there are, thankfully, manifestations of courageous Christians. But it is sad to see that much of the modern church and its members are still being taunted by the Philistines and Goliaths of our society. It may be done in a more subtle form of condescension. And it could be something like our Creator is considered to be the stuff of fairy tales. Uh, that's sweet. You Christians believe that. That's really no different than Goliath standing on the banks and yelling across the other side at what a ridiculous God you serve. We don't serve a God that's from a fairy tale. We serve the one true God. There ought to be something that really does make our blood boil when we read stuff that diminishes the idea of a purposeful, divine creator that put everything in place in six literal 24-hour-a-day periods. Our adherence to the precepts of God's word makes us out of step with progress. In other words, <laughs> do you know what century you're in? You know, this, this isn't, you know, Victorian England or, you know, the, the bygone ages of the middle, the dark ages and so forth like that, where people were very um, uh, superstitious about things and they would follow blindlessly the, the religious leaders of the day. No, it's not that. But it is that we have the embodiment of all divine truth in the word of God and we're not backwards or uneducated, or foolish because we choose to believe the truth that the God of all the universe gave to us. And yet, those that consider themselves educated and scholars are nothing more than the, the modern-day Philistines that we face. We're even considered narrow and bigoted and hostile simply because we hold tenaciously to the teachings of God's Word, and maybe we're not politically correct. Maybe because of what we stand unapologetically for and say, this is what God expects from us. And so therefore they say, well, that's just hate speech. Well, call it what you will. You can paint it so that you make us look like the bad guys. But in fact, this is how it all began. And the God that made you and God that made me, we have an obligation to bring glory to his name. And I'm not going to sit idly by while someone wants to somehow intimidate me down from taking a, a very solid stand unapologetically for what the Word of God teaches. Sin should be seen by the godly man as an intrusion of the enemy into territory that rightly belongs to God. Think about that. You think, oh, you know, well, we sometimes feel like we're the outsiders and we need to tiptoe around. No. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If anybody is intruding, it's the heathen. And this is for God's glory. We too easily surrender and don't speak up. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be militant and we're, we're supposed to take fleshly means to try to force something to happen, but... Neither should we become silent about it. We need to be like David, 
we need to put on the whole armor of God every day. And we need to have in our hearts what David said when he was questioned even by his own side, even by his own blood brother. David's response was, is there not a cause? And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a cause. There has always been a cause. There will always be a cause. And the cause is the, the God whom we love and we serve. And when we say, I'm going to be loyal to that God, and I will not shut up about him, that in, in the essence is part of godliness in our lives. To contrast, David is a, the sad story of another man in the Bible by the name of Lot. One could hardly ask for someone to have a better spiritual role model than Lot did in the form of Abraham, who was also known as the friend of God. Although Lot was his nephew and had spent significant time with him, we can only imagine all that Lot had been exposed to and how really he was without excuse for not having a personal walk with God that was solid and helped him to be as loyal as David was in his day. And yet, Lot does not choose to follow his uncle's cautious examples when it came to becoming entangled with fallen society. Lot took advantage of the opportunity to move as really their they were prospering. Lot and his, his flocks and his men were prospering. And Abraham and his flocks and his men were prospering. And there was contention between them. So there, there needed to be a, a, a little bit of space put there. But Lot took that opportunity to place himself in a very dangerous position, spiritually speaking, and his family as well. He saw Sodom and the well-watered plain in front of it as an opportunity for prosperity. But as he makes that move, it cost him dearly on the balance sheet of eternity for his spiritual condition. Everything came to a calamitous climax when God sent angelic messengers to Lot with the warning to leave the city before it was destroyed. That was a work of God's mercy. That same evening, the men of the city of Sodom insisted on Lot turning over his male visitors so that they could sexually abuse them. And what happens? You know the story probably. Tragically, Lot offered his virgin daughters to these intended rapists as substitutes. I still, every time I read that story, I just, I cannot fathom a father getting that low that he would thrust his own precious daughters to that sinfully hungry, violent crowd outside the doors. And had it not been for the supernatural intervention of these angels, unspeakable things would have occurred, no doubt. As it turns out, the unspeakable things were just delayed a bit because there was unspeakable things that ended up happening lot leaves but you know he cannot convince his married daughters and his son-in-laws to go with him 
Don't know what that looked like, but I could see Lot going over to their homes one by one and pleading with his sons-in-laws, you've got to get out. God of heaven and earth is going to destroy this city. And they says that they thought he was one that was joking. They, did, they couldn't take him seriously. You know what that teaches us? That he had no testimony of godliness in front of his family. He was a Christian. He was righteous because of the grace of God. But yet, there was no demonstration of it in his outward life on a daily basis. And so, his daughters, his son-in-laws, any children that might be in the home, they were certainly killed by God's fire. He might have been able to have an impact had he had a different attitude about sin. They were most, his wife and two single daughters got out alive. We can cheer for the moment, but that turns very sad because remember Lot's wife. She's so caught up in her heart. She can't help herself, even after she's been warned. She turns and looks back and immediately is reduced to a pillar of salt. He moves on with his two single daughters to find some cave to find refuge in. And though he has escaped the judgment on the city with his two daughters, they have brought with them all the carnality and the lack of godlessness as if they were continuing to live in the city. They get their father drunk. They take turns committing incest with their dad so that they might have him sire children for them. And of course, the nations that grow from those two children are wicked nations. It is a tragic, sad story from the moment that Lot chooses his own well-being and material profit over investing in things above. And folks, that story is played over and over and over again. You see, the conscience of Lot grew callous gradually. I don't think it was a sudden thing. He became increasingly careless about the godless society around him. You know, remember how it begins? He just pitched his tent towards Sodom. He didn't move in, but somehow, and we're not given all the in-between pages of the story, he went from a distance looking at the city to suddenly being a leader sitting in the gates of the city. Once you begin to spiritually tumble, it's hard to gain traction. It really is. Whether it is today an abuse of television, indulging in things that are increasingly more sinful and immoral, whether it's social media that's being abused, an overemphasis on hobbies or sports or whatever it might be. Some of these things in and of themselves are not sinful. But Lot could have made a case that neither was it for him just to point his tent flap in a certain direction either. But you can be assured of this. His heart was facing Sodom ere his tent was ever facing Sodom. 
And I think the danger is that we get our hearts faced to what the world has to offer, and we get so caught up and enamored in it. We lose track of how these things are going to melt with a fervent heat, and we no longer set our affections on things above like we once did. We become lots. So we need to ask ourselves, do the temporal material benefits outweigh the potential of eternal losses? And hopefully we still will answer that question, no, it's not worth it. In 2 Peter, if you just look over at chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it's talking about the judgment of God here. And verse 6 talks about how they turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And then verse 7 says, And God delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. And by the word just, we mean he was, he was righteous, as it says in verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. How could he not if he's a child of God? How could that not be convicting? And how would he not have to be pressing that conviction down over and over again? Perhaps he was dulling it. Perhaps it wasn't echoing as loudly as it once did. But God delivered Lot, who was righteous. He was saved by faith in the finished work of the coming Messiah. We'll see him in heaven someday, according to Scripture. Yet, as he is one of God's own, we would have to say, but he was not godly. He was God's, but he was not godly. It's not a given for us that just because we are welcomed into the family of God that automatically we're going to handle things as we should. He has given us the tools. He has given us the Spirit. He enables us by His grace. But are we being wise stewards of it? When we are given to godliness, we are focused on it being cultivated in our own lives we also need to care about the presence of godliness in others. Others who are God's children. Titus 1 tells us to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's not enough for us just to say, well, I'm going to mind my own business and I'm going to seek to be godly. And it's sort of everybody else's business on them figuring that out too. No. Our New Testament teaches us over and over again. If we see someone overtaken in a fault, you can't just turn the other way and say, not going to get involved. No, we need to restore them in a spirit of meekness. Contradicting someone is caring for them when it's done out of love and loyalty to God. It's not easy. Recently, I had someone come to talk with me and, shared some things in their life, and as they went on to ex- express, and they're Christian, they're very open about their profession of faith in Christ. But they were bemoaning about how a relationship ended, but it was a relationship where they were not wed, and yet they were living together. And I pointed out, I said, maybe this you need to see this as a blessing of God to help remove you from that state of immorality 
And I said, and I would challenge you to resolve that moving forward, say, God, help me if you bring another person into my life that I'm going to do this by faith in a way that honors you. It would have been very easy for me to just keep my trap shut. It really would have. And I'd be, I'd be dishonest to say that there wasn't just a little bit of a struggle inside of me that says, you know what, he, he's a, he didn't come for this, but the Holy Spirit would not leave me alone. It was as if the Lord was just saying, do you not care enough for this soul to tell them what they need to hear the most for long-term help in their life? I did not sit there as someone who was better than him. I'm, I am a guilty sinner before God and only have righteousness because I am robed with Christ, as we all are. But we have to care. We have to be involved. Godliness is not a sideline issue. It's an involvement. It's a caring issue. And this is something that God develops in us as we are yielded to it. So let's champion loyalty for God. Let's not be silent. Let's not be afraid to be righteously indignant over the sin around us and to not sit on our hands and to speak up and to express what God has said. Let's all have a little Old Testament prophet inside of us and let's love others enough, show them we care by simply showing them the truth of God's word. Father, as we consider godliness tonight, help us to, to learn it as your word teaches it. May we not fall into the trap of Lot. How easy it is to allow the comforts of this world and the trappings of it to lure us into a false sense of values. But we are betrayed every single time we do that. We will have nothing but a life of regret we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So, Father, give us the spirit of David. Help us to be someone that says, is there not a cause? And that cause is not just conservative Christianity, but it is the person of you. It is about our love for you. And, Lord, may that drive us to be the outspoken believer at times that we need to be, that you'd have us to, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.